Thank you, Brother Aiden. Now that he's raised the bar, I will have to somehow arise to that if I can. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 61. Now, I may have mentioned this here before on another occasion that I uh, have had the opportunity to preach in Aiden's behalf, Pastor Aiden's behalf. Um, when I retired, I decided I was going to go through the Psalms because I needed to keep my heart warm. And there's no better place but to land in the Psalms because they are prayers, they are songs, they are the, the music of the church. Uh, they are the inspired hymn book of God's people. And um, in every, every Christian tradition, barring none, the Psalms have held a premium, a high, high place in the life of the church. It is uh, uh, one of the Psalms says in the very first verse I ever memorized as a young lad, uh, says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that was the very first psalm I ever, or verse I ever learned. It's in the Psalms, Psalm 119, 11. And so um, I hope to hide more of God's word in my heart as I make my way through the Psalms. And I've landed on 61 for you today. And I think it's a very fitting psalm considering the events of this past week. It's not my intent to comment on them, but I know it's on everybody's mind here and our hearts are aching for uh, people in the Middle East, and it kind of sends a dis-ease uh, among all of us as to how this might um, end and transpire and how it might uh, un unfold in the world, how it might affect our own homeland and homelands, if that is uh, many here this morning. I'm going to read Psalm uh, 61. It's a psalm by a soldier a soldier king. His name is David. You've heard of him. He is one of the prime characters of the Old Testament. His story is uh, told in First uh, uh, Samuel 1 and 2 and then into Kings a little bit. And uh, many biographies have been written on his life. His life is legendary. Uh, his epitaph is a man after God's own heart, but we know that he was also a great sinner. And um, in, in so doing, he also learned the great forgiveness of God for uh, many of his own uh, evils and shortcomings and downfalls. Uh, David is far from home. That's where this psalm starts. He is uh, disconnected from all that is familiar. Uh, he is, you know, maybe under a kind of a dark cloud mentally and otherwise. Uh, life to him seems remote, it seems precarious, it seems uncertain. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's very much like our day. Uh, it's a psalm that may have been written uh, after he was driven from Jerusalem by the rebellion of his son Absalom, who took the throne from him, drove him out of the city. And so having lost his throne, and also having lost his son. So this was a, a, a double whammy for him, and he was certainly reeling. It may have been. Although David, as a soldier, uh, fought many campaigns far in the north, which would be modern-day Galilee, or the Golan Heights, or even all the way to the river uh, Euphrates in the far north. 
He may have been up there thinking of this psalm far from home. Um, and uh, uh, what we find here, though, is one of David's more positive psalms. Uh, he seems to have found his way. He's found his place. He's found how to reconcile the remoteness that he's feeling, the uncertainty that he's feeling, and resting in what I'm going to call true spirituality. And I'll define those terms. Uh, well, I'll do that right now. Uh, spirituality, or what we used to call piety, uh, which is more of a Christian term. Spirituality is more of a general term that can be applied to Hindu spirituality or Buddhist spirituality or Christian spirituality. Uh, habits and practices that are involved in these various uh, religious perspectives and, and practices and outlooks. The fact is we all have a kind of spirituality and uh, what we would long for and I think what this psalm is an example of is what we might call just true spirituality, uh, true biblical Christian uh, spirituality. There are certain practices that, that um, we engage in as part of spirituality. Bible reading, prayer meetings, attending to the sacraments and the ordinances of the church, uh, loving the Lord's table and gathering when it is offered, um, confession of sin, regular repentance uh, is part of a true spirituality. The, the, uh, the habits and the practices that we're involved in. But it also involves true spirituality is not just the things we do, but it's also the frame of heart that we have toward these things. Um, a heart that is born out of having been born again by the uh, power of the Holy Spirit transforming our lives. And so the frame of heart, the frame of mind, the, is more like that fire that keeps faith alive in us, that uh, keeps our love for Christ growing and, and so forth. It, the, the frame of heart that, uh, that draws us to the gospel repeatedly day after day after day. And that's all made up in what we would call true spirituality. Practices and habits of the heart. And that is what we're talking about here. We call this piety. We call this true spirituality. Those habits of the heart. Those practices that drive us close to God when, when times are off-putting times are difficult, we still are called to rest in the Lord. And so let me read uh, Psalm 61. Then we'll go back and look at some of David's habits of the heart that kept him close to God when he was far from home and living in a situation that was precarious and uncertain. To the choir master, 
with stringed instruments of David. Hear my God, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. You hear that? that from the ends of the earth and far from home. My heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love, faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, open our hearts and open our minds to this wonderful prayer, this longing to be where home is, uh, not the home of our origin, but that home in heaven, that home where God manifests himself, where he meets us with the assembly of his people. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant us today a vision of your glory through this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The opening title or superscription, as it is called, says that it's given to the choir master according uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. So we had stringed instruments up here today and a couple of others. Uh, electric piano really is kind of a, that's a stringed instrument, or at least it used to be. It, it mimics a stringed instrument. So here you have a display of stringed instruments. Well, the intent was that this prayer was to be given over to the musicians of the church to put to music so we can all sing it, even today. So this prayer can not only be locked into David's time, but brought into our own. It is your prayer and my prayer as well, and that's what makes them wonderful. They are ever new and they are ever fresh. And it was the intent that this Psalm of David would be given to the people of God to sing for their encouragement and for God's glory. This psalm is about simply this, the faithfulness, faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God is born out of, out of the good habits we keep. And not merely the habits in terms of practices like prayer and Bible reading and, and honoring the Lord's day, being with the assembled people of God, but the frame of heart as well. And that's where this psalm accents itself today, that, that frame at heart. Not so much the practices, but the frame of heart. The outline is fourfold. We see four habits of the heart in this psalm. Number one, a singular focus. 
Number two, a holy desire. Number three, a messianic perspective. And finally, a devotional heart. This is what God would see cultivated in each of our lives so that they can help us make, help our hearts remain warm, warm to the things of the Lord, that uh, we would remain attuned, our instruments of our heart would remain in tune with God's ultimate instrument. And the psalm concerns a singular focus. This is one of the great things about Christian spirituality. The focus is not on you. The focus is not on me. It's not on any person. The focus is on God and his glory and his goodness and his grace, his sovereignty. We've heard that word a couple of times in one of our songs today. We are told, or one of the songs, the words were, uh, in the chaos, in the chaos, in confusion. I know you are sovereign still. Now that's a, that's a big view of God. That's realizing that though the, though the world seems to be crumbling around us, there is still a King of kings and a Lord of lords that's on the throne whereby he, we can never expect that he's going to be leaning over the railing in heaven, looking down upon earth, wringing his hands impotently, and wondering how things got out of control. He's not worried about that. Nothing that has happened, even though we can't explain it, we can't give good explanation, nothing is outside of God's sovereign control. You are so sovereign still. We sang that this morning, and I hope that we embrace that truth in our heart. This is a prayer of faithfulness when the psalmist, in this case David, was far from home, faint of heart, and encumbered by the ever-present enemies that he has to contend with. Enemies that, incidentally, really are nothing more or less than those conf that conflict that existed all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the conflict, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent would destroy God's kingdom. And David is God's messianic king, and Satan would see his, his king destroyed and his kingdom ravaged. But God is sovereign still. However far from home David may feel, he is, not, he is never so far from God. God is always near. No matter how faint David feels, God is still the rock to which he would have God help him to ascend. However strong his enemy is, his God is stronger still. He is a refuge and a high tower. Hear these words again. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. 
when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Wonderful verse that's been a great encouragement to me in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. It reads this way. For what great nation, speaking of Israel, in this case, the people of God, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? David has discovered that wonderful truth. He is far from home, but God is near. And as however far you are from home, God is near. However far your heart may be from God himself, God is still near. Any abandonment that has taken place is not on God's part. And there is always room and desire in his part for us to return. The rock that is higher than I. David recognizes he can't climb this rock himself. He can't, he can't scuttle up. He cannot climb the face of that wall. He needs divine assistance. He needs a divine transport that gets him from the base of the rock to the top of the rock where there is sure footing and he will never be shaken. And thus he prays, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is a place to stand. We all need a place to stand when there is shaky ground all around us. We are told in the word of God and 1 Corinthians 3, there is no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The sure foundation of our life, the rock of our salvation, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the singular focus uh, to which we are called, to have a big view of God, to think the thoughts of God after us, to see him as our strong tower, our mighty rock, our, our refuge, which we can fall in whatever situation in life we find ourselves. Now there's another habit of the heart, what I call holy desire, a holy desire. Look at verses 4 and 5. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. There are four words that are brought to light in these two verses that would seem to indicate to me that he's speaking of the house of the Lord or what we might say the tabernacle or later what became the temple, the center of worship or worship itself. You understand that under the New Covenant, the believers of the New Testament, like you and me, we are the temple of the living God. And unlike the, we're more like the tabernacle, it could be disassembled, hauled across 
the desert, reassembled, and that's what we can do. We are the living stones that make up the temple uh, or the tabernacle of God, the place where God dwells. As God was among his people at the tabernacle and then the temple, we today are the temple of the living God. And we disassemble, and you'll do that in about an hour, and you'll all go to your various places of residence. But next Sunday, or sometime during the week, you'll reassemble. That temple will come back together, and you'll take these living stones and bring them together, and you'll sing, and you'll pray, and you'll hear God's word, and you'll delight in the things of the Lord. That's what the temple of the Lord does. And God promises that where two or three are assembled in this way, he is in the midst of them in a very special, wonderful, and powerful way. We must never deny that. This is the most important hour of your week right here today. So the first word is David prays, let me dwell in your tent forever. I think he's talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. Later it became the temple, a more permanent fixture. It was a tent. It's sometimes called the tent of meeting. It's where sacrifices were offered. It, where, it was where there was the holy place and the holy of holies and there was a courtyard and the altar of sacrifice and all the various pieces. It all had symbolic meaning pointing forward to the day when God would offer the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he fulfilled it all. But David is, is far from this place, which is set up near his homeland in Jerusalem. Oh, he says, let me dwell in your tent forever. You know, the, one of the sons of Korah had a very similar longing in Psalm 84. Listen to these words. As he is contemplating the place of worship in Jerusalem, we know today is the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is holy desire. This is a desire to be where God meets his people in that special way. And that is at the assembled temple of God. In other words, we would say today, when the church assembles, God is there in a way in which he speaks quietly to our heart and whispers to our soul and speaks to us through his word and, and brings blessing to us when we lift our voices in song and praise to him. Let me dwell in your tent. The psalmist in 84 also says, even the sparrow finds a hold. And the, swallow, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young your, at your altars. And, uh, o, o Lord of hosts, my King and my God. He's jealous. He's jealous of the birds who live in the rafters of the temple. They're there all the time. They lay their eggs there. They, they give birth to their young in the very presence of the temple. And that psalmist is thinking, why can't I be so privileged? He wants to be there all the time. Why? It's the lovely dwelling place of God. There is nothing lovelier to the child of God than the assembly 
of the people of God. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The shelter of your wings. Now, this might be a, a prayer for protection and care and oversight. That may be true. But he may be referencing that implement that was found in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, were two cherubim whose wings were stretched out over the top and they touched in the middle. Also on the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies were embroidered cherubim with wings. We take shelter under the shadow of your wings. We might say today, may I take shelter at the foot of the cross because the lid, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant was where the blood was shed on the Day of Atonement for the covering of the sins of God's people. Today, we look to the cross. There is our mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. We long to be under the shelter of the mercy seat, under the shelter of His wings. He's anticipating there's something special going on here. A third word, He speaks of vows. Vows are acts of worship. In our own Church, we regard the taking of vows to be acts of worship. So when we ordain a minister, like we did Brother Aiden a year or so ago, he took vows in your presence uh, during a time of worship. There were men here who lay hands on him and to set him apart to the gospel ministry. Yeah, vows, vows. You have uh, you, for you, O Lord, have heard my vows, and you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The heritage, that's the promise of God's covenant. That's God's promises to us. We have an inheritance. The world may be falling apart at the seams, but we have an inheritance. Things may crumble tomorrow. I don't know. I'm no prophet. But we have an inheritance. We have the promise of the forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of eternal life. If this world falls apart and us with it, we are promoted to glory. There is much for which to live. There are those who would say, oh, you know, you're, that's just so much contemplative claptrap. And, you know, you're, you Christians are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, let's be clear. The problem in the world today is we don't have sufficient heavenly mindedness for anyone to be any earthly good. One has to have a connection with heaven. One has to cast their anchor beyond, beyond the visible and have it connected in the world that is not this world in order for them to be of use and service in this world. Most young people want their lives to count for something. And my friends, the only way your life will count for something is if you are connected to Christ Jesus, if you are connected to the world that cannot be seen so that you can live to the glory of God in this world that can be seen. We pray or sing in Psalm 23, Surely goodness 
and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is your heritage. That is my heritage. In Christ, that is where we are going. In Psalm 73, the psalmist was uh, kvetching. That's a good Hebrew word. Uh, kvetching, or Yiddish word would be more accurate, I guess. Uh, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It raises the question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to languish? You look around and you, don't, you see justice turned on its head. The psalmist says, when I thought about this and how to understand it, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Or we might say, until I went to church and sat under the hearing of the word and lifted my voices in song and lifted my hearts in prayer and praise. When I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on a slippery slope. You will make them fall into ruin. It's in the house of God where we get perspective that is sufficient for us to face life out there. One thing I have asked of the Lord, said the psalmist, that is what I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him or inquire him in his temple. Now, most of you are young people. I was one once young, uh, once young and um, it just seemed like yesterday. So time does roll on pretty fast. J.I. Packer, who is one of the great evangelical theologians of this generation, recently passed away in, in his 90s. And he said this, this quote was brought to my attention in a book that I read by him some years ago, where he said, I do not suppose that I am the only evangelical who finds the actual practice, the actual exercise of worship, that deliberate lifting of one's eyes from man and his mistakes to contemplate God and his glory. See, that's what worship is. And how it grows increasingly precious as the years go by and brings solace and refreshment to the spirit in a way that nothing else can. My prayer for you is that as the years go by, you will acquire that kind of holy desire for the people of God, for the worship of the living God, and a desire to grow in grace. Now this one I can, I've got to mention, the third one, the messianic perspective. True Christian spirituality focuses on Christ. It's all about Jesus. Some of the songs that you were singing today wonderfully brought our attention upon Jesus Christ, Him as him alone, he is all that I need. One phrase in there, a song that uh, I'm quite familiar with, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, 
but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. You see, that is a messianic perspective. We, when I was a younger pastor serving a Navajo congregation in the Southwest, my predecessor had taken a three-by-five note card and thumb, put in thumbtacks on the pulpit. Can't do that on here. Thumbtacks won't fit in. But he put it in this wood pulpit, and he quoted the verse from Acts that simply said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And that served as a reminder to him that when he came into the pulpit, he presumed that God's people wanted to see Jesus through the worship, through the ministry of the word, through the, his leading in prayer and so forth. I kept it there for nearly 10 years. It got soiled, it got dirty, it got frazzled in the corner, but it reminded me day after day as God's people came to worship, I presume that they were seeking Jesus. And in due course, our hearts were all molded together to grow in our love for Christ and our delight in his love for us. This is the nexus of Christian spirituality, of true spirituality. It's, it's messianic. And I want you to notice here in verses 6 and 7 that David starts in this prayer, he talks about himself as the king of Israel. Uh, now, driven from a throne, perhaps, uh, but he prays for his life, that he might survive this attack upon him. Then he prays for his, the generations to come, his sons and their sons' sons, the kings that follow out of his line, his dynasty, if you will, and then he prays a prayer that can only find its apex in the one who is seated on the throne of David and of his kingdom there will be no end. And his name is Jesus. In verse 6, David prays, prolong the life of the king. Praying for himself. He has enemies. His life is, is in danger. Save me. Protect me. Deliver me. And then he prays, may the years, his years endure to all generations. This goes beyond David himself. It goes to Solomon and uh, Rehoboam and those who followed uh, the, the line all the way up to Joseph and Mary and all the way up to the Lord Jesus himself. And then there is this prayer that can only be, only be answered by a forever king. And here is his prayer. May he be enthroned forever before God. David can't be talking about himself. He knows he's going to die someday. He's a realist. He's talking about someone who is going to fill this forever kingdom who himself is the forever king. Jesus is the divine son of God, and he lives forever. He remains our king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And life, as disordered as it may seem, is still under the authority and oversight of our, our Savior King. A devotional guide says this about this psalm. 
David's prayer looked ahead to the day when Jesus Christ would rise from the dead to live forever as the King of Israel. Christ sought refuge in God during his many trials, and now Christ, now the risen Christ is the solid rock and the strong tower of his people. So here is a psalm that directly points to the Savior himself. So we've talked about a singular focus, a holy desire, a messianic perspective, and a devotional heart. The psalm ends with this verse, I will sing, I will ever sing praises to your name, and I will perform my vows all day long. A devotional heart is what David would call in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart. And this is the heart that God will not despise. It's not the proud, boastful heart. It's not the heart that ignores wrongdoing, injustice, or sin. It's a heart that is broken and contrite before God. Isaiah would say that a, a, a devotional heart is a heart that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at the word of God. We take the word of God seriously. We hear it. We ingest it. We are mindful that it is God's word speaking to us and joined with his Holy Spirit, he drives it into our heart. A devotional heart is, a devotional heart is drawn to the sacred assembly of God's people. And you may not uh, be mindful of it today, but I am sure that one of the reasons why many of you have come to this assembly today is because you, you sense that God is drawing you here. There's something special in store for you. The Christ will be exalted, and my heart will be renewed as a result of it. A devotional heart is drawn to sacred assembly, and it's a heart that sings within and sings without and fulfills one's sacred vows and word. I repeat J.I. Packer's phrase, which I think is so good. I do not suppose that I am the only evangelical who finds that the actual exercise of worship, what is it? That deliberate lifting of one's eyes from man and his mistakes to contemplate God and his glory. And he doesn't imagine he's the only one who says that it grows increasingly precious as the years go by and brings solace and refreshment in a way to the spirit in a way that nothing else can do. The worship of God's people is good and necessary for good society. It is good and necessary for life on the university campus. It is good and necessary for the transformation of a city like Minneapolis and, and uh, St. Paul. It is good and necessary for the nations and nations that hold down the gospel are mocking God. And, and, and yet God's people keep gathering for worship. And if they can't worship publicly, they'll go underground and worship and bring about God's transformation to the world around them. That is what we do. So when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees one day in John 5, he told them forthrightly, uh, when they were bantering with him, he said, you err not knowing the scriptures. 
These are they that speak of me. These are they that speak of me. And what was he referring to? Everything in the Old Testament. That was the only Bible that Jesus had at that time, and that was the Bible that he used. In Luke 24, we are told that he went from Moses and all the prophets. Later, he mentions the Psalms as well. And he opened the scriptures and explained what they said concerning himself. That journey with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, I would give 10 seminary educations for the two hours I would have with those two disciples. Because there, Jesus opened the scriptures in a way that none of us ever can do perfectly. Jesus did it for them. And he took them to the Old Testament and said, these are they that speak of me. So when we read the Psalms, when we read any portion of the Bible, look for Jesus. How can it be the path to Calvary? How can any particular text be seen in light of gospel hope? We see here that this enthroned king is a point, that David prays, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over them. That steadfast love, that word, this is the 32nd time that is used in the Psalms in the first 61 Psalms. It is a, an important word. It, 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 it speaks of gospel hope and gospel truth. We open the service today with the, uh, the quote from uh, the book of Lamentations. And it talked about the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. They are new every afternoon. They are new every evening. They are new every day. The steadfast love of the Lord is that which only God can give. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. We cannot acquire it through some kind of spiritual technique. It is a gracious gift of God, and it's called the gospel. The gospel of God's grace. That we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, now we are told we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he seated us in the heavenlies and set us in his very presence. This is grace. This is the rock that is higher than I. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. And this is where this psalm takes us. It takes us right to Jesus. So let us be sure that we've embraced him and seek him as we give ourselves to the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and heavenly Father, Fill us, Lord, with your spirit, your grace. Tune our hearts at this time to sing your grace, that we might do so in such a way that would be transformative, that your spirit would be poured out upon us, that our eyes would be lifted from the cares and chaos of the world and set upon the, the throne of your glory. And may Jesus be lifted up before us. May he be hidden in our hearts, and may he be pronounced and proclaimed from our lips. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.